Amen, amen. Yeah, I heard somebody say adios to the kids, right? Uh, they're going to go have a party. For those of you standing in back, uh, it's a good thing to see people standing in back. But you don't have to stand in back. We have seats, so there's some there. Uh, you can go front row if, if you really um, want that pain in your life. Um, I don't suspect that's the case, but there's, there's seats. Uh, good, good to be with you this morning. Uh, hey, God, this makes no sense. You ever uttered a sentence, something like that, maybe out loud or maybe uh, even in the stillness of your heart? Maybe the sentence that you have uttered, uh, that one is kind of coined by a guy named Pete Holmes, who happens to be uh, a comedian. Somebody chuckled there. Uh, This is a Pete Holmes thing. So, uh, but it's, it's so meaningful to who we are as people and what we're living. Hey God, this doesn't make sense. Maybe you've said something a little differently, but uh, still in the same territory of, dear God, why would you do that? Starts to get a little, uh, a little more real, right? Dear God, why in the world would you do that? We live in unprecedented times. What an interesting, uh, what a weird, what a crazy season for us to all be alive together. And I don't have to tell you that living in this day and age creates for us some really unique experiences and difficulties. And no matter where you line up on the political spectrum, no matter where you line up on particular social issues or or municipal issues or even home issues or issues around your body, we live in a crazy time, a difficult time. And yet a time where getting to the bottom of questions and statements like, hey God, this makes no sense, and dear God, why in the world would you do that, can serve us really, really well as we live. And we're not alone, friends. This is important for us to remember that we're not alone in this. Whether your, hey God, why in the world would you do that is connected to a child that has been taken from you or a parent or a relationship or even your own health or wellness, a home, a business. We are not alone in this reality of, hey God, why would you do that? The Old Testament book of 2 Samuel is a kind of a tricky one. Uh, and not one that, like, I recommend to brand new investigators of God to read. Uh, a couple of you are chuckling, you're familiar, right? It, the, the book of 2 Samuel really opens with King David's predecessor, King Saul, who was kind of an awful guy at the end and pursued King David, and who well, wasn't a king yet, but pursued David, and did his very level best to have him killed and murdered. And the book opens with news that King Saul has been killed one would think that David might maybe not celebrate it, but at least be like, whew, there's a weight off my shoulders. But the early chapters of 2 Samuel are really just kind of a a liturgy, if you will, a a historic reminder of the world of war. Coercion meeting coercion. If you take from me, I murder you. If you come against my people, I'll bring more people. And it's just murder for murder for murder. And anybody trying to read this and make sense of where in the world is God? God, what are you doing? God, why are you letting this happen? It's easy for us to view David as a warrior, right? For 
those who have some recollection of the life of David, he really establishes himself as a young warrior at the very beginning when this small kid named David comes out, you know, the weakest of all the brothers, and fights off Goliath and establishes himself as this courageous warrior. But David's roots are really found in a creative, in the artistic, in the embrace of God's beauty, alone together with God as a shepherd. And as he rises to prominence through these early chapters of 2 Samuel, he longs to usher in God's presence to his people. So in chapter 6, he goes back. And he grabs the old playbook that he's used so many times, the the conquering playbook. And he gathers his most elite soldiers that he has, 30,000 in all. And you would read the story if it was a movie as him assembling this great army and think, okay, well, we're back on the move again. You know, chapter after chapter after chapter, David is led to war and he's conquered and he took over Judah and then he took over all of Israel. And then he, he beats all these predatory people. But he doesn't do that. He grabs his 30,000 people. And in chapter 6, he goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant. This relic of God's presence, this giant box. Some of you have come to our Good Friday uh, gathering over the years, and we actually have the Ark of the Covenant here. (laughs) Take that, Lakeside. Uh, Love you, Brad. But he goes back and he gets the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents all of God's miracles. It represents all of God's presence and all of God's law and all of his truth. And inside this box are the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and, and a pot of manna and Aaron's rod that was touched. And I mean, all of these relics that remind us of a great and victorious God. And he says to his 30,000 elite Navy SEALs, I don't want you to go conquer this time. I want you to get God's presence. And I want you to bring it. We will not enter my city, my kingdom's reign, without God's presence leading us. That's cool stuff. If you know any of the story, you know it goes sideways in a hurry. You know, for 40 years, Israel wanders in the desert, and this Ark of the Covenant goes before them. When they crossed the Jordan, the Ark went first. They didn't go anywhere God led them without the reminder of his presence and his miraculous power. Even the gold-plated lid of this thing, and like, if you're one of these types, I just adore you, and I'm not, but you want to go down the hole on this one? Like, just go down the hole. You start on Wikipedia and just start clicking all the biblical links. This gets wacky fast, and I mean, you're going to dig this, all right? Um, If you're clicking around on YouTube links, going down rabbit holes, this is for you, okay? You know who you are. Some of you send me these YouTube links. Uh, But even the gold-plated lid of this giant box is significant, And it is called the mercy seat. God's presence coming in power. So when this new King David decides to bring this giant box out of retirement, 
in 2 Samuel 6. It would serve as a clear call to all of the people in this budding new kingdom that a new king was in town and that we were going to lead different. It would be God's hand of protection that we will depend on in Judah. It will be God's miraculous care that will guide us. It will be God's presence that will always go before us. And nothing less will be enough. But there's two things that happen in all this that would lead David in that time and connect you and I to the story of raising the question of God. Why would you do that? Why would you take my spouse? Why would you take my child I hadn't even met? Why would you take my job I trained for? Why would you take my home that we worked so hard on? Why would you take my joy or my mental health? Why would you take my physical health? Why would you take my hope, God? Why did you take my friends, Lord? Why have you taken and taken and taken from me, God? Look at 2 Samuel 6 with me. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Baalah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. Verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from some guy's house, who I can't figure out the pronunciation, so I'm just going to skip it. His house was on a hill. Uzzah and another guy and a third guy <laughs> were guiding the cart. They carried the ark of God and they walked in front of the cart. And David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines and something I don't know and cymbals. Castanets, anybody even know what that is, music teachers? This thing? Wow, that's the stuff they give me, the guy who can't play anything. They're like, here, buddy, you take the finger cymbals, all right? And maybe like a little napkin in between them, if you don't mind. Um. But get this, verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark. And the Lord's anger, what, what does it say about his anger? The Lord's anger aroused against him, and God struck him dead. What in the world, God? What are you doing? Like we're trying to usher in a new way of living. We're trying to say that we're going to lead with your peace, and we're going to lead with your presence, and the oxen slips. And a guy reaches to try to, like, study the thing and you kill him out of anger? What in the world, God? Text tells us in verse 9, well, first it says David was angry. So he meets the Lord's anger with his own anger. Ever done that? How's that working out for you? I say that not jokingly. How's that working out for you? How's your rage against God serving you in your life? Is it getting you anywhere? There's another way. There is another way. 
And then it goes on in verse 9 to say that David was now afraid of the Lord. Well, who wouldn't be? Trying to do a good thing for God, and he, you know, kills your buddy. I want to stop here uh, at God's leading, his presence. Because sometimes even the reminder of God's past miracles in our life can feel more like a burden than a blessing. God, I was just trying to do things your way and everything blew up in my face. God, I was just trying to obey you and look, I got taken advantage of. God, I was just trying to do this business deal in a way that would honor you and they hosed me. So you know what? From now on, God, we're going to do it my way. You know, I I tried to trust because you say to trust, God, and I got taken advantage of. So you know what, God? From now on, you ever done some stuff like this with God? Nope, just me? All right. I am Stu Streeter, and and I am a rageaholic, right? (laughs) God, you just don't make sense. And to some extent, this is what King David must have been feeling in that moment. A little interesting dig for those who want to. I put it in your digital program. If you want to dig in a little bit and see kind of where that comes from. Numbers chapter 4 gives us a little instruction on this that I won't go into great detail. But here's a really interesting reality about this. David did it all wrong. There's like really clear instructions that David as a king would have had at his ready for how to move the Ark of the Covenant. And it's outlined in like wild detail. How a goat skin is to be laid and how it's to be carried and poles and who carries it and this whole thing. And David not only ignored it all, he kind of did it the opposite. It's supposed to be carried with these poles and only the Levites can ever even touch the poles. And David just grabs the thing and throws it on a cart, the text tells us, and rolls it into town. It's like, David, what are you doing there? Well, we'll find out later in 2 Samuel that David sort of has a tendency to cut corners. Is that the nice way to put it? Is that, that's how we do it for kids when they're in the room? Like David had a way of taking what he wanted instead of doing it God's way. David had a way of saying, this thing is wonderful and beautiful and God says I should enjoy it this way, but what could God possibly know? I'm going to enjoy it the way I want. I mean, after all, God made it. In their excitement, in their hurry, maybe just in their oversight, David and his men tossed the ark on a cart and they rolled it into town. They they wanted God's presence, there's no question. They wanted his blessing. Certainly, they wanted to a reminder of his miraculous power in Israel's midst, but they wanted it in their way and in their time. After that death, they leave the ark at Obed-Edom's house. And for the next three months, the text tells us, just the presence of the ark of the covenant at Obed's house rains down blessing on his entire household. So much so that three months later, David comes back and he's like, all right, well, you know, let me get that ark back. And he does. And once again, with a great celebration, this time he cranks up the celebration from 10 to 11 and dances a little bit more. 
And while dancing and celebrating uh, the second ushering of the ark into the city of David, he, he parties even more and he sacrifices and he, he gives a peace offering and he does all the stuff. And as he's walking into town, celebrating the goodness of God, celebrating God's faithfulness, his wife sees him dancing. And my best reading of it is she gets angry that his dance moves are going to impress the ladies in town. I kid you not. And she meets him at the door, angry with him. Uh, the, the text in the New Living Translation uses the word disgust. Have you ever had somebody you love look at you with disgust? Is there anything worse? There's nothing worse. It's like every time David tries to usher in God's presence, every time David tries to walk in the way of God, it seems to kind of blow up in his face. And so often our lives feel the same. We do what we're told to honor God and usher in his presence. And we, we give ourselves to his way. And we pray the right prayers. And we, we show up to the right meetings. And we say the right things. And we read the right stuff. And we, we, we go to the right retreats. And we do all the things that we're told we're supposed to do. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. I want to pause my remarks here for just a moment as the tension creeps. And I want to invite uh, your friend and mine, Gregory Spinosi, to join me up here and uh, share just a little bit. Yeah, please do. Because uh, I, I've been talking with Greg a lot over the last year, and we get together on a fairly regular basis, and I, a couple of us, but I got a text message from him a couple weeks back that was like, oh, man, <laughs> uh, we, we should talk. Uh, and so uh, the last year has been pretty powerful for you, uh, a time of pretty significant shift and transformation, uh, both spiritually and mentally and emotionally, a, a lot of different things. Share a, share a little bit before we get there. Share a little bit about what got you there. Talk a little bit about childhood and some of that stuff. Sure. Well, hi, everyone. Um, so I grew up in a Christian household. Um, Dad was a worship pastor in and out of my whole life, essentially. Um, charismatic churches a lot. Um, and as a young child, I was actually not even two years old, uh, I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in my ankles. Thankfully, it only spread to a couple of other joints because it can spread to other joints. But um, growing up in a charismatic church with a worship pastor dad, um, where it felt like every other week there was some kind of healing service that was happening. Um, those kind of those things did not coexist very well together. Um, my parents took me to every healing ministry there was, uh, and spoiler, I'm I'm still not healed. Thirty years later, so um, so uh, what that did is, especially as I started to get older, and you know, as you get older, you question the world and you start to think about your own existence, and you think, especially in a Christian church, you know. God, like the question, why? Why am I still dealing with this? And for me, it led to very, very deep-seated doubt and cynicism and skepticism of the church, of God, of my own existence in everything. Um, and dealt with that essentially my whole life. That cynicism where I knew if I pulled at that string, I probably wasn't going to like the way everything unraveled. We've, uh, we've started to use the language around here quite a bit of trap doors. 
uh, I think, pull the string and the unravel yeah. is another great imagery for this. This idea that we all carry things with us that we can't make sense of, that God, why would you do that of our lives? And for a lot of us, a lot of the time, we just put that stuff in a neat little box and we put it in a room in the house that we don't open the door to. Uh, and we know that if I pull that string, something's going to unravel. We know that if, we, if I pull that trap door, I may not come out the other side believing the things I think I'm supposed to or want to or whatever. We uh, had a spiritual retreat this spring that we went away on, one that we're going to do again this fall. And uh, speaking of trapdoors, you pulled a few trapdoors. You were pretty courageous and got after some stuff. Talk a little bit about spiritual retreat in this whole process. Yeah, spirit, I mean, even just in general, anyone who has kids knows that taking four hours to just not do anything is kind of like an unheard of thing, <laughs> which is what we did. So to take four hours and essentially just sit staring at Lake Tahoe and start to pull at the strings and start to open the doors and see, you know, what is it am I actually feeling here? Is it really just all about being, you know, in physical pain all the time? Or what else is there that, that's causing me to have these, these um, strands of cynicism and, and doubt that I, that I go through and that I deal with all the time? Um, and what that really did was it just allowed me to start the process, really. Um, to go 30 years of not, of, of letting the cynicism build and the doubt build and to not address it, first of all, is incredibly unhealthy. <laughs> um, so to finally start to open that door was something that was, even though nothing is, was fixed or even necessarily is totally fixed now, it's started the process of me being able to actually have an open communication with God about how I'm feeling instead of, no, I'm just going to leave that over there. I'm not going to deal with it. Um, I'm just going to sit in my cynicism and, and, you know, try to live my life that way. So we started gathering, uh, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago with a small group of y'all, uh, some from disciples and, and a number of people not connected to church at all for a, a monthly gathering around a table we call sacred conversations where we just sit and we talk about doubts and disbelief. And we try to anchor all of that in a spirit of humility and generosity. And so each month at the end of our gathering, we go, okay, what do you want to talk about next month? And generally, somebody will say, hey, I want to talk about this. And so last month, we talked about worship. And uh, you arrived, as you told me Thursday night, like, oh, I'm going to go, but, I, you know, this is going to be a waste. Uh, talk about what, what happened there. Well, again, worship pastor dad around worship all the time. Worship was one of those things that I didn't think really fed into any of my doubts per se. But in the conversation, it really came up that there are certain songs that we sing that I just couldn't address. I couldn't sing them. I couldn't, again, open the door to those kinds of songs because the words that they sang f fed into my doubt and they fed into my cynicism. Um, and the question was raised that night, well, what would happen if you did listen to it? And I was like, I don't know. I don't really want to. <laughs> um, so, you know, a couple of days go by and I'm at home, I'm doing dishes and I just feel this leaning to listen to one of those songs. So I'm like, eh, why not? So I throw my AirPods and I start listening to this song and it hits me like a freight train just in the gut. Um, and so I, I have to take a moment and I turn off the water, I pause my headphones and I still hear the song. I'm like, and my wife is listening to the same song in the living room. <laughs> and so I'm like, what? And, and it really what it, it's not even about the song per se, but um, the idea that hit me during that song was that 
when you're a cynic, when you're a cynic, you often look for things that prove your cynicism, and you're usually proved right. But looking for things that prove your cynicism is, like I mentioned, it's exhausting. Um, you're usually proven right, but that's because that's all you're looking for. So in that moment, it kind of hit me that I can listen to this song and be happy and believe in the who God is in the way that he has worked in these things in other people. God's been good in my own life, even if he hasn't healed me, but I can look and see, you know, the person who was healed over here that there's no medical reason for it. The, the people here that suffered drug addiction their whole life but are still alive. The couple that had been trying to have a kid for years, were told they couldn't, and now they have a kid running around. So um, it doesn't mean that I don't doubt. It doesn't mean that I still don't have cynicism that, that comes up, but it has allowed me to have a game plan in the moment to center myself and to focus on God and to focus on what's actually good in my life, even if I have pain. You, yeah, right. You said, a, you said a statement over dinner the other night uh, about this stuff too, uh, about sort of the concept of what would happen if I actually got healed now. And how, You're going to make me talk about that? Well, I'm yeah. not going to. No, right. I'm not going to no, make you do happening. anything. It's happening. Do you want to play there? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, well, when you deal with pain, especially from two, essentially two years old to now, um, it becomes closer to you than really anything else. Um, you don't really know what life would be like without it. So in, in having a conversation with myself and with God, it's like, well, what would I do? It's like, I don't know what I would do. It's become closer to me than the air I breathe, essentially. Uh, it's be it had become something that I had essentially uh, idolized. Because, you know, it was something that made me feel like people noticed me because I was in pain all the time, um, which is incredibly unhealthy. Um, but, uh, but again, instead of looking at it that way and, and, and focusing on what God's done for other people is that grounding um, that, that I needed. So. Yeah. It's, uh, it's stories like this that remind us that if God is real and if he's at work in the world, and let me be clear, I believe he is, and he is. Uh, that pulling some trap doors may lead us through a season of darkness, may even lead us through a season of doubt. Uh, but coming through that, at the, at the core of our soul, at the bottom of those trap doors, is where we find God. That's where we find God. Uh, and so it's through that darkness we find God, and we begin that journey. Thank you, Greg, for sharing. Thank you. You, uh, you see, David's just trying to ensure God's presence and his miracles follow his kingdom. And this is what makes the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the appearance to his friends, all of that of Jesus, so powerful for us today. You see, when Jesus gathers his 12 best friends around that supper table for what we know as the Last Supper before he would be arrested, betrayed, and sold off, there's no Ark of the Covenant. You ever catch that? They, they don't bring in the Ark of the Covenant to say, okay, well, I'm going to go now, but, but this is now going to be here for you to remind you yet again, like it has in past generations, of my presence and of my power and of my miracles. The ark is gone, and what is left? He says, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit who will be with you always. 
The disciples gather around a table and they don't celebrate the past. They celebrate what is now, God's presence with us. There is now no need for a relic of God's presence for Jesus is his embodied presence with his people for all time. Relics of God's presence are now obsolete. And Jesus has delivered us to God, holy and blameless. You, delivered before God, holy and blameless. With all your mess-ups, with all your cynicism, with all your doubt, with all your anger, with all your disbelief, with all your self-righteousness, church, we do it better than anyone. Jesus delivers you. And around that table, there's no need for two stone tablets of the law of the Ten Commandments because Christ has now summed up the whole law in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, law done. Don't need the tablets anymore. Hallelujah. And around that table, there's no need for the disciples to go muster some peace offering or some sacrifice of any kind like David had to do because Jesus himself would now be the sacrifice once and for all. And there would be no necessary need or want or desire to ever sacrifice again for Jesus has done it once for all. And and we follow this through all the way through to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he writes in the message version, Whenever, though, they turn their face to God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence. A living spirit, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old, constricting legislation is now recognized as obsolete. We are free of it. All of us, it says, nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of his face as so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him as we were always intended. So stand with me, if you would, right where you're at for now anyway. And as we make the only point today that probably matters, we are going to take communion together. This ancient tradition of celebrating the broken body of Christ and his blood spilled to wash away our sin. And then after that, we're going to sing a closing song and then we're going to go to the parking lot party for the ages. Uh, It's going to be a good one. And I'm told... There are burritos for everyone, uh, which is also awesome. So as the band uh, gets prepared to join us on stage, uh, I want to invite you to head to the back table. And we we generally are accustomed to taking communion around here. You know, you grab a a little itty-bitty piece of bread and a little, little cup of juice. And there's some meaning to that, which is valuable most of the time. But today is a day of celebration. So today I'm going to invite you to head to that back table and to get a big chunk of bread. If you're gluten-free, you know better, uh, but there's little uh, single serves for you back there. Uh, But get a big chunk of bread and pour yourself a big cup of juice. 
Sophie somewhere is freaking out that we're going to run out. Uh, but I know you won't let anybody go without. And then we're going to come back together at our seats before you partake. And we're going to celebrate the goodness of God. We're going to celebrate that the stone was rolled away. We're going to celebrate that there's no longer an Ark of the Covenant to come in and get all the rules right. There is just Jesus. And we feast on his presence. And we feast on his goodness. And we feast on his beautiful way. So go now, if you would, as music plays. Capture your elements and come back and we'll take them together. Take just a minute and get elements. that even getting the elements is a messy procedure. And even getting back to the table is confusing, busy. We celebrate, we see one another, and we laugh, and we have a hug with somebody we haven't seen in a while. We're looking around, we're making sure everybody gets elements, making sure nobody's left out, nobody in back, nobody up front, nobody in a seat. Everybody gets the elements. excitement begins to build, that we are partakers in the divine nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. says in chapter 4 verse 16 that we now 
can go boldly into God's presence, knowing that when we arrive in his presence, we will receive mercy and grace. There's no longer a reminder of what we got wrong or how we didn't measure up. There's only Christ. There's only Jesus. Paul talks about these sorts of parties in one of his letters to one of the churches and he's pretty stern they had turned this sacred time of celebration into a bit of debauchery and he chastises them that all the most powerful and the loudmouths of the group I don't know who that would be um, they're getting all the elements and the widows and the orphans are being left out And in that moment, he says, listen, pay attention. Be sure everybody gets the elements. Be sure that you keep this holy and sacred. Celebrate, yes, but be sure you keep it holy. Even in the joy, even in the anticipation, we're reminded what a holy act it is to remember his body. right? Got a little scary there on a few occasions. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we see and he made the things we cannot see thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him he existed before anything else and he holds all of creation together. 
Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everybody. And with everything in the heavens and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Take the bread, take his body, take the juice, take his blood, and remember what he has done for you. So we have come boldly into your presence, Lord, and we have stood on the promise that we are met with grace and mercy. May we find you at the depths of our soul, and may we find you to not just be real, but to be at work making right everything that has gone so wrong. And God, when we ask the question, Lord, what in the world are you doing? May we hear your voice whisper with grace and love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.